Good morning. I'm Allison Pinches. I'm the Director of Discipleship here at Courtright. And this morning, our lead pastor, Alex, is up in St. Andrews in Fergus. He is uh, preaching there this morning, and then he is their interim moderator in this season. And so he is the chair of their annual general meeting that will be happening after the service. So we want to remember him and that community in our prayers as we think of them this morning. Let's pray as we begin our time together. God, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for one another. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and open our eyes to see and ears to hear the truth that you would have for us. Would you help us to leave as changed people from encountering you and being changed by you in your word together this morning. For this we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. We're continuing our series in hospitality that Pastor Alex began last week. And to start off, I'd like to share something with you that is posted on the inside of a cabinet in my kitchen. A few years before my grandma died, my aunt collected from her some of her entertaining tips. My grandpa is a professor, and they would have countless students through their home during the week. But the pinnacle of the week was always Sunday lunch. My grandma hosted hundreds of people in her home every year, and one year for fun, my mom actually gave her a hospitality award and counted up the guests in a one-year period. The total came to 1,200 meals and 64 overnights that year alone. Grandma was famous for her hospitality, welcome, and wit, but not so much for the caliber of her cooking. We never quite knew what was in the soup, and usually we didn't want to. Um, One time, those of us at the kids' table were absolutely convinced Grandma had put fish eyes in the soup. How are we to know she had put tapioca, and who knows why? She had added tapioca just to stretch that soup a little farther and make sure everyone was fed. So without any further ado, here are Grandma Houston's top entertaining tips. Don't worry if you can't, can't see that. Number one, don't worry if you did not expect the guests. You don't know what they are expecting, and there will always be enough food. You see, my grandpa would often enthusiastically invite people and then promptly forget who and when he invited them. Sundays were particularly interesting as they would prepare food and then they would each go to church and invite additional people. So by the time they got home from church, they really never knew who would actually knock on their door. Which leads us to number two. Invite anyone in. It is always a blessing. Number three. The welcome is more important than the food and the setting. Number four. Don't wait till all is perfect to have guests or you will never have them. Number five, accept all offers of help. It is a blessing to both. Number six, remember that this is not your house, but it is the Lord's. Number seven, one small meal is no big deal. A whole lifetime of entertaining is of great significance. That is exactly how you could summarize my grandma's legacy, a lifetime of welcoming. Number eight, you will never know the value of what you offer to others in inviting them into your home. Number nine, if your husband has invited them and you really don't want to see them, make sure you're out when they arrive. (laughs) Number ten, thank God you are not alone and that there are people to invite. I can just hear her in a particularly exasperating moment trying to be grateful. (laughs) Number eleven, in your preparation, make sure you save some energy for your guests. They are to be enjoyed and not a burden. Number 12, doing it in partnership with your spouse is a blessing to both you and the guests. Number 13, try to have children down the road so that they can take over for you when you need a break. (laughs) 
Number 14, set a pretty table before your meal prep so that even if the food is not good, they won't notice. (laughs) Somewhat related to my personal favorite, number 15, use lots of candles. That way you don't have to dust or worry if the silver's not clean. (laughs) And number 16, entertain often. Practice takes away the stress and increases the ease and the enjoyment. A number of years ago, my grandma gave me this teapot. (laughs) It was given to her by another friend who also hosted many, many students in her home, and it was given to me for the same purpose. This is a ridiculous teapot. If you haven't noticed, it's cracked and it does leak a little bit, but to me, it represents hospitality. It is not perfect, but it's abundant, it's lavish. It says it won't be perfect, but you are welcome and there is room for you. So with that setting the table in mind, let's dig into our main meal. Our passage this morning comes from 1 Peter chapter 4. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. We're going to begin our discussion of hospitality today by considering three things that we see in this text. First, the end is near. What does it mean to live in the reality of the current age? Second, love and hospitality as the foundations of the Christian life. And third, the context of suffering. Faithfulness to this call will inevitably involve suffering. Our passage comes from the letter known as 1 Peter and is written by the Apostle Peter to new Christians spread over a wide area. Edwin Bloom says this about the people that that Peter is writing to. Their basic problem is to live for God in the midst of a society ignorant of the true God. Because they are Christians, they're misunderstood and subjected to cruel treatment. And Peter's pastoral purpose is to help these early believers see their temporary sufferings in the full light of the coming eternal glory. So the passage begins, the end of all things is near. The word here for end in the Greek, the language this was originally written in, is the word telos. Telos means the intended end or fulfillment or purpose of something. The telos of a caterpillar is to be a butterfly. The telos of an acorn is to be an oak tree. The telos of all things is near means the intended end, the fulfillment, the way that all was created to be is being restored. In other words, the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom, the place where God is king, where the order of the world that God intended has come near. So now why would he say this and why now? Well, what follows is a description of what it means to live as a Christian, as one a part of the kingdom of God, knowing that the intended end or purpose, the fulfillment, the restoration of all things is near. The big picture of scripture tells us that we began in a garden in perfect relationship with God, with one another, and with creation. Then sin entered the world, and these relationships were never the same. Dysfunction and destruction reigned. But with Jesus came a whole new era. 
the era where his kingdom, his way of doing things, is what's starting to come back and take over. God's original tent, the way we were made to live, with him and with one another, with the earth, was being and is being reestablished. And this is the age that we find ourselves in, the telos. We are moving towards our and all of creation's intended end or purpose. And so with all of that in mind, Peter goes on to tell us how we are to live. As Christians, our invitation is to join with God in the work of seeing the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So as people who are joining with the work of the kingdom coming, Peter says, Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. So the primary instructions given to partners in the kingdom, people that follow the way of Jesus, is love. You may know that there are multiple words in Greek for love, and the word for love used here is agape. Agape is known as love that is more concerned with the other, sometimes called self-sacrificing love. It's unconditional love that delights in the other. And this is the foundation, the beginning of the call to live as Christians, as partners in the coming of the kingdom. So from this foundation of love is the directive to offer hospitality without grumbling. So to Peter, the most obvious expression of love was hospitality, and he qualified it without grumbling. Remember, agape is the kind of love that delights in something. Love that delights in the other is not manifest in begrudging hospitality, but in a joyful welcome. Almost always when hospitality is mentioned in the New Testament, it is embedded in a list like this, within a broader call and description of what it looks like to live as a Christian. Hebrews 13, for instance, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Don't forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison. And it goes on and on with more instructions on how to live as Christians. Romans 12, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, share with the Lord's people who are in need, and practice hospitality. Again, the call to hospitality embedded in the broader call to live a Christian life of love. It's interesting that these passages also cite particular gifts that people are given. Our passage says, serve one another with whatever gift each of you has received. That Romans passage names different gifts like prophesying, serving, teaching, encouraging, giving, and leading. But love and hospitality are distinct from this list. They are not particular gifts given to some, but part of the calling and mandate of all believers. The context of suffering. If we are to love in this way and practice hospitality in the way that we are exhorted to do, we can't get very far from suffering. It's literally all around us in our passage for today. In the first Peter text, the paragraph before ours begins with, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, and the passage which comes immediately following ours is, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. What kind of love, what kind of hospitality are we to show if the very next thing that Peter wants to tell us is now don't be surprised when you suffer? This kind of hospitality hints at something different. 
Last week, Alex introduced us to the Greek word for hospitality, phylloxenos. This word does not imply polished silver, pressed tablecloths, or fancy doilies, or whatever else we might think of with hospitality, but rather it comes from two root words, philos and exenos. Philos is one of the Greek words for love. So as we already said, there are several words in Greek that are used to convey different types of love. We've already talked about the other's focused, self-sacrificing agape love. There's also eros, from which we get erotic love. Storge is natural affection or family love. And in contrast to these, philos is the love for a dear friend. It's kindness and affection. It's not just I love you, but I really like you. Exenos, as we learned last week, is the word for stranger, a foreigner, a stranger, an alien, someone who we don't know. So let's pause here for a moment and put it together. Philos, friend love, and exenos, stranger. Friend love for a stranger. It's a paradox. The very nature of philos is affection, love for a dear friend. But this word calls for that kind of love, love for a dear friend, to be directed towards a stranger. The love of a friend for a stranger. This is a profound concept. And for the rest of our time, I want us to consider this friend love for strangers. Four and a half years ago, Jordan and I moved to Guelph. When we moved, we only knew my uncle and aunt who lived just outside of Guelph and two families who lived here. And that was it. One of those families was the McLeods. Alex had been the university and young adults minister at Knox when I was a student. And one Sunday before we moved here, we just showed up here at church, completely unannounced. And Alex and Judith promptly had us to their house that day. We did a reverse Zacchaeus. Alex said, you're coming to my house today. So we did. And soon after we arrived in Guelph a few months later, I don't even remember if we'd actually come back to court right yet or not, but we got a knock on our door. We opened the door, and there was Ramona Brown-Mansour, who we had never met and who had a whole meal for our family. Another day, Wendy Eastman, again someone we didn't know, showed up with food for us, and the McClouds brought us a meal too. Alex said to us, you just moved. You need food. So I've asked some people in your neighborhood to bring you food. Alex made it clear he was not trying to bribe us to attend KPC with casseroles, and I knew Alex well enough to know that he meant it, But it worked (laughs) anyway. We were stunned. These total strangers in this new city had brought us amazing food just because we were new and lived in their neighborhood. Either that or the pastor made them to do it. It was a profound gesture of welcome and hospitality, friend love for strangers that we will never forget. My dad worked for Air Canada, so I grew up with the privilege of being able to fly standby with the airline. When you fly standby, it's always an adventure, as you never know if you're going to make it on the plane till the last second. More often than not, it works out, but all airline families have stories of spending days stuck in some airport or another. Just ask Karina. (laughs) Growing up in Vancouver and attending the University of Toronto and then living in Europe for a year, I flew a lot and often by myself. I got into some very tight and tricky situations, but God seemed to enjoy showing me his provision by getting me on flights that I absolutely shouldn't have made it on. So I was curious to see how he would show up one day when I was in Vancouver trying to get back to Toronto for work, one day in late August. 
I got to the airport to find out the flights were completely full. And not only that, there were about 60 people on the standby list, and I was about number 59. Those are not good odds. So I started a day of watching flights leave without me. My mom, who was on the other end of the phone and trying to help me figure out how to get home, came up with a brilliant plan. She said, there's a flight leaving leaving Victoria tonight for Toronto, and it's got tons of space. Jump on a flight to Victoria and catch that. So I went and told an agent what I wanted to do and asked her to change my standby reservation. Much to my horror, she thought that my mom's plan was so brilliant that she announced it to the whole waiting room of 59 other stuck standby passengers. So needless to say, when I showed up in Victoria, I had company. I kept thinking, okay, God, you have never made me sleep in an airport, but this really doesn't look good. I am really curious to see how you're going to pull this one off. I started surveying the benches and seats at the Victoria Airport, wondering what it would be like to sleep there overnight. And even though it was Victoria, this idea of being a young woman traveling alone was not particularly appealing. I started chatting with a couple other young women traveling standby and in the same situation. One of them was from Victoria, and we were all on the standby list. So they started calling names for the last flight of the night. Please call pinches. Please call pinches. A pile of names and no pinches. Then the dreaded announcement. For the attention of those passengers traveling standby, this flight is now full. Your names will be transferred to the next available flight. No, I couldn't believe it. It had really happened. I was stuck and going to have to sleep in this airport. God had always come through before, but this time I was not getting on the flight. As I was wondering which bench to sleep on, one of my new standby friends turned around and said to me and my other two new friends, all right, I talked to my mom. Her mom was a gate agent in Victoria. And you're all coming home with me. We've got beds and a shower, and you can stay with us, and we'll all come back in the morning. I was stunned. He had done it again. I wasn't going to sleep in an airport. I did tell God that I would have rather been on that airplane, but that was still pretty impressive how he pulled that off. I was receiving incredible hospitality from complete strangers. I hope that we all have stories like these, of receiving lavish gracious hospitality from strangers. We're going to look for a moment at a story in John chapter 13. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Side note, I can't help but tell you that the end here again is that word telos, the intended end or purpose, the fulfillment. So he agape loved them to his intended end or the fulfillment of his purpose. Okay, back. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began washing his disciples' feet and drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus said, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. 
Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is the messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So we're going to zoom in on one particular thing that Jesus says in this story. He has just literally taken the place of a servant. A servant offers to clean the feet of the guests, but it was considered such a low job that even Jewish servants were not required to perform this task. But Jesus takes this on, and with the feet of each of his disciples in his hands, he offers them this incredible gesture. He finishes by saying, Now that I, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, so you also should wash my feet. No. (laughs) I hope you caught that. This passage is so familiar to many of us that we don't actually see the jarring nature of what's here. Isn't that what it should be? I have done this for you, so you should do that for me. But no, he says something else entirely. He says, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. Can you just see the wheels turning as John looks over at Peter's feet? They always smelt like fish, no matter how far they were from the water. Or Philip looking at his old tax revenue agent thinking, I don't know where those feet have been. Leslie Newbegin writes this about what Jesus is saying in this passage. The debt which we owe to him is to be discharged by our subjection to our neighbor in loving service. Our neighbor is the appointed agent authorized to receive what we owe to the master. Let me say that again. Our neighbor is the appointed agent authorized to receive what we owe to the master. All the love, gratitude, debt that we can't possibly pay back to Jesus for laying down his life for us, for restoring us in relationship to God, for making us children, co-heirs with Christ, freedom from sin and bondage, peace that passes understanding, all of this gift from the master. And he says, instead of paying that debt back to me, pay it to each other. Now, I want to be clear. We can never repay God for what he has done. There is no way to earn the grace he has offered in in us, in life and his son. But let's imagine ourselves as incredibly grateful to God for all this. Hopefully, we're not just imagining So let's imagine all the love we have for him, all the gratitude, all that we would want to do for him if he was right here physically with us. He says, give that to each other. In Newbegin's language, your neighbor is the appointed agent authorized to receive what we owe to the master. My favorite teacher, Daryl Johnson, explains it like this, but I've adapted it for my own context. My husband, Jordan is the appointed agent authorized to receive what I owe to the master. Jesus says, with all the love and gratitude you have for me, serve Jordan. My daughter Zoe is the appointed agent authorized to receive what I owe to the master. 
The Mercer family, my next-door neighbors, are the appointed agents authorized to receive what I owe the master. My staff team, Rowena, Dale, Alex, Project 242 team, and all of you are the appointed agents authorized to receive what I owe to the master. He says, don't try to pay me back. Pour all of that love out on one another. All that you would want to give me if I was physically right here with you, lavish that love on your neighbors. Love and serve strangers as friends. God is the one who first welcomes and receives us. He is the great host in this world and life. He welcomes us. He makes us at home in him. And from this place of belonging, of having received the most incredible welcome, we can receive and welcome others. In John 15, he talks about this being at home in him. He says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. Remain or abide or make your home in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain. You will be at home in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. Here we see this abiding, this making our home in him. We do this by keeping his commands. And what's his command? That we love one another. All of this leads us to a broader view of hospitality. I truly believe, as Christians, we are to share and offer what we have, including our homes, with others, and that a profound ministry can happen within the walls of our homes. But the definition of a hospitality offered here is much bigger than the four walls of our homes. Friend love for strangers is not limited to cloth napkins and fine china, though that may be part of it. We are called to become people of hospitality. People who embody friend love for strangers wherever we go. That means that hospitality can be extended in the lineup at the grocery store, pumping gas at the gas station, in the next cubicle, on the playground, or in the classroom. We can become people that welcome others, that receive them, and that reflect their value and worth in our conversations and encounters, no matter how brief. We can make people feel at home wherever we are. How do we embody hospitality in such a way that it can't help but spill over to every person we encounter? A lifestyle of hospitality, of loving the stranger, or helping people feel welcome and at home within themselves, with you, and in this world. This extends from the briefest encounters all the way to strangers that become dear friends and even family. One secret about hospitality is it spreads and grows. It's contagious. One time we invited a few people for lunch after church, and one of the families that came told me that they liked the idea so much they did the same thing a week or two later. There's something delightfully contagious about hospitality. My friend Amy, who's a former colleague from university, has packed her home for many years now with Thanksgivings, for Thanksgiving, full of people. 
and particularly international students. They have done this until they outgrew her home and now hold it in a church. And now when Amy says that they outgrew her home, she means that in her student-ish housing house in Waterloo, they were getting 50 to 70 people for Thanksgiving dinner. After one such event where her house was bursting at the seams with people, one of the international students who had been studying in Canada for five years told Amy that this was the first time she had been invited into a Canadian home. Five years. That is tragic. So this is Amy. I want you to see her. She, I want you to see what she looks like. Amy is from a very small town in New Brunswick. But something has happened to Amy. Something serious and significant. God has completely captured her heart. And her, she, from small town New Brunswick, has fallen in love with the people of Iran. Amy has countless Iranian friends. She's been learning Farsi for years now and just recently started learning Arabic. Amy also, along with Thanksgiving, hosts Iranian New Year's party. This is an important festival in Iranian culture called Noruz. And she told me that they maxed out their biggest Noruz party at 70 to 80 people coming. (laughs) This is a photo from their very first one. What I love is that if you zoom right in the middle, you can see a blonde head in the middle, and that's Amy with her friends. Last year, her dream came true of getting to travel to Iran. And Amy's life has been realigned with this calling to love Iranian friends. This doesn't really add up or make any sense apart from the gospel. This foreign country, these strangers, aliens in this land, are Amy's beloved friends. Friend love for the stranger. She has made a group of people, a group of strangers, her people. And this is hospitality. My dad first met Randy at a meal drop-in at our church. Dad was there washing the dishes, and after seeing Randy for a few weeks, they started to get to know one another. I'm told my mom was pregnant with me for the first time Randy came for dinner, so I have never not known Randy. Randy was not yet sober when my dad met him, and slowly he learned of his tragic and way too common story of childhood neglect and abuse. I'm not sure at what point Randy became family, but it happened somewhere along the way. And by the time I was a teenager, Randy was a staple at Christmas, birthdays, and regular dinners around the table. My brother and I came to anticipate how we might use the generous $20 Randy was sure to slip us in a card on our birthdays. It wasn't, it isn't, always easy. My parents laughed, trying, remember trying to explain to their five-year-old that their dinner guest was not going to be joining them one night as he unexpectedly had to go to jail. And sometimes, yeah, my dad would have to drop Randy off at the nearest bush where he was sleeping that week. But slowly and surely, Randy's life started getting in order. He's been sober for decades and had housing longer than I remember. I don't know what him being part of a family and being loved did for him, but I can't, think that, but I can't help but think that it was part of it. And aside from the impact on him... I am profoundly grateful for the lessons I learned from my parents because Randy was in our life. Not even lessons. That's not the right word. It's just what you did. It was just how you lived. And as I look around at my extended family to my uncles and aunts and grandparents, they all have Randys. 
people in the Christmas dinner photo who are around the table not by birthright, but because someone chose to love a stranger like a friend, like family. A couple years before my grandma died, she was honored for her lifetime of hospitality. Regent College in Vancouver named its new kitchen the Rita Houston Kitchen. Regent said the name honors Rita's commitment to home and hospitality and is an invitation to all who prepare or receive food from the kitchen to carry Rita's dedication and example as a servant of God into their own homes, churches, academies, and the marketplace. This honor was not a reflection of the quality of the meals, but the quality of the welcome. Our family even jokes that this industrial, stainless steel, bleached and sanitized kitchen at Regent really bears no resemblance to its namesake, except that it offers a warm welcome and food that somehow stretches farther than expected. This is a lifestyle of hospitality coming from a woman who knew how profoundly and graciously she had been welcomed by her Lord. Her children wrote this about her. While meals were the excuse, the real offering was a faith-drenched invitation to a place of safety, of being cared for, for lively banter around the table, of being understood and even loved. Rita used her home to express her deep gratitude to her Heavenly Father and to express in a simple, tangible, and distinctive way her gratitude for God's faithfulness to her. A welcome from Rita was a welcome not so much to an exemplary culinary experience, but to a practical and grateful faith expressed in the simple offering of the grace that she herself had received. Rita Houston loves her Lord and from this foundation of simple faith has grown a remarkable capacity to welcome those who need a place. From the many times she has been surprised by Grace's welcome of her has sprung a relentless desire to offer welcome to others around a bustling table, around a simple meal, around the treasured word, and from the acts of service. Here Rita has given voice to her receiving of grace. In the entryway at my aunt and uncle's home is this sign, Enter as strangers, leave as friends. And it truly is what happens to all who step through their door. May we also bear this sign as we greet others in the grocery store, in our workplaces, and as we welcome them home. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that more and more we would know ourselves as being welcomed, received, at home in you. And from this place of knowing our belonging, of the welcome that we've received from you, would you help us to extend that welcome to all that we encounter? For we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.